Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. Music too? Honey, I live music. Morning, noon, a whole night. Everything else is just icing on the cake, you dig? I dig. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special, the night we get someone in, if we can, to pick the tunes. And tonight I'm delighted to say that my guest is the novelist Emer McBride. Emer, great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having We've, me. I've been hoping to get you in here for quite a while, but you, you know, you live in London and you're not here that often. So I'm delighted that you can do this. You better introduce your first track because I'm not sure I can say it with a straight face. Well, the first track is I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett on the Black Hearts, which has to be the great first song of my childhood. I remember hearing it and just being kind of amazed, especially with the with the big scream. So, uh, yeah, Joan is the woman. Start as you mean to continue. Eh? Joan Jett and uh, I couldn't say the Blackheads, the Black Heart, <laughs> the Black Hearts, and I love rock and roll. The first choice of my guest tonight, Emer McBride, is with me in studio, and I'm really glad she's here because I've interviewed Emer many times before, but it always gets very serious because we're talking about writing novels and stuff. But tonight it's tuned. Um, I know you're into music because maybe not so much in the latest book, Strange Hotel, but music has been there in the books. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly in The Lesser Bohemians, that yeah. was something that I I began to listen to music that I had listened to in the 90s again to, to kind of recreate the atmosphere and then sort of picked up where I had left off with bands and So you were, use, you were using the music as a kind of an aid, an aid to writing? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, the, of course, music has a, an ability to kind of recreate a time and a place in a way that almost nothing else can for you. You know, you're immediately set back to that mm. time when you loved that song or who you were with or the things that you did. Um, yeah, and then kind of listening to, to musicians that I hadn't listened to for years and then catching up with them again. And, and would you have used the, the music in terms of how you use it as an aid? Would that be, are you constantly listening to it while you're writing the book or, or literally listening to it as you write the book, if you know what I mean? It, I think it depends, and, and both, in mm. fact. I mean, there were certainly times when I was listening repeatedly to certain tracks just over and over and over again because the rhythm seemed right mm. or they seemed to create the right atmosphere inside me for writing what I needed to write. Um, and then also because, you know, with that book, with The Lesser Bohemians, I was writing male character from a male perspective and I hadn't done that before. There were a lot of male uh, songwriters that I listened to who kind of really helped 
to get into the the psyche in a way that male novelists feel more at a remove because mm. you know singers are more emotionally it feels like they're more emotionally available that was kind of useful insight into uh, it's kind of it's, it's kind of instructive isn't it and interesting to listen to music that you haven't listened to in a very very long time because you, you you hear it sometimes completely differently it doesn't sound it doesn't sound remotely like what you thought it sounded like. Yeah, well, and also I think music, if you you listen to it when you were much, much younger, suddenly it, it you can really pick out different things and different ideas and you thought the song was about one thing and then later yeah. on it really feels like it's about something else. Yeah, yeah. Your next choice and and <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, back, we're back there again. Yeah. I, I, I well, d- we are back there again. I, d- I remember this, I used to think this was a feel-good song. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this one I yeah, I I picked really in in memory of my my two older brothers who who were great uh, metal fans back in the eighties and and used to like to do a bit of headbanging in the sitting room. Mm. Uh, so I've I've in the, in their honour I have picked uh, Paranoid by Black Sabbath. I haven't heard this in a long time. This no. might have a bad effect on me. <laughs> Paranoid from Black Sabbath, the second choice of uh, Emer McBride, who for all her literary abilities has chosen the song, which opens with the line, finished with my woman because she couldn't help me with my mind. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I didn't choose it for its lyric qualities. <laughs> but it does take you back, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean that was, you know, the grand old time in the, in the west of Ireland in, in the 1980s where that was the devil's music. Yeah, well, that's what you think. <laughs> now, now where, where, where in the west of Ireland were we? Where are we, where are we talking about? Uh, well, for most part, until I was about 14, I lived in Tubbercurry yeah. in County Sligo. And then after that in Castlebar. Yeah. Uh, was that a move to the big city in that case? Yeah, like it that? definitely felt yeah. like it. You yeah. know, there was there was a big library, there was a cinema, there was an art centre. It was, uh, yeah, it was like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd taken off to New York or something. Yeah, big urban environment. And uh, in terms of uh, when you were at school, and uh, was it an all-girls school, was it? Um, well, I went to a number of different schools. Uh-huh. So I think I started off in the in the convent in uh, Tubbercurry and that was um, all girls once you got to first class or second class. I oh, think. I'm sorry I asked. This is going to be really complicated. It's going to be really it? complicated. But in, yeah, so uh, secondary schools, no, they were both mixed. All oh, right. And what impact do you think the mixed schooling, because I've asked this to a few guests before and they've had different ideas about it. What effect it would have had on your musical listening? Because when I was at school, the boys were all into, you know, rock and the girls were into what was on top of the pops. And there wasn't a whole lot of movement from that. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that I that my experience varies much from that. I mean, it definitely the boys were all into kind of Dio or and then later Metallica and all that kind of business. And yeah, the girls, although there was a lot of kind of Irish folk Mm-hmm. that, that uh, a lot of the girls were into at that point as well. Voluntarily or through sort of school, you know, groups and things like that? No, well, I don't remember there being that much of that kind of thing at school, so I think it must have been mm. voluntarily. And what about the uh, the <laughs> the country and western scene? Was that big? 
well, you know, obviously there was there was Midwest Radio that was uh, very dedicated to. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of Foster and Allen played in my house when I was growing also, up, yeah. um, which I you know don't remember quite as fondly as I remember Black Sabbath, but uh, <laughs> but it, it was there, it was present. When did you start the writing then? I suppose I started writing when I was a child, you know, and at first it was just I really liked writing stories at school whenever we'd have a, a, an assignment. And then later on, having the kind of moment of revelation where I realised I could get myself a full scap and and a pen and just write whenever I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so I would sit and do that. And of course, in my teens, lots of terrible poems and angst-ridden sort of missives. Were they terrible or are you being hard on yourself now? Oh, no, they were terrible. Mm. I mean, I still can't write poetry, so I can't, you know, what it was like back then was under the influence of hormones is a lot worse. And what about the stories you're writing? Is there any merit in those, do you think? It's funny, actually, because I, I had a, I found some old folders when I was moving house a while ago and, and was kind of looking through stuff from maybe 14, 15, 16 and there were a couple of phrases jumped out that later appeared in go. novels that I had completely forgotten, but were clearly kind of swilling around in my imagination. Yeah, I think you told me once that you wrote some stories to, literally to infuriate, antagonise your, your teachers. Well, um, I, I think I was I, I was very keen on taking particular themes like and men, mentioning things like menstruation, which was considered terribly shocking thing mm. for someone up 16 to be to be even writing that word in a in, mm. a, in an essay that would be handed to a teacher. And and my, my friends kind of reading and going, oh, my God, you'll have to cut that bit out. Um, and were you doing that? I mean, were you doing that for the the correct motive, if you know what I mean, or were you doing it to annoy the teacher, to shock the teacher? No, it wasn't. It wasn't to be provocative, although I knew that it would be. It was because it felt like that's what the story mm. required. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think my motives were quite pure and that it could be an irritant was just a little bonus, I suppose. And where do you think that came from? Because you know, there are lots of kids who can write and as you said, you know, the teacher sets an assignment and you, you get on with it and you do it. You write about the day you went to the beach and it can be, might be good. But you were, you were going beyond that. You're writing something that you wanted to write yourself. Well, you know, I was reading a lot. And, and of course, for every writer and every budding writer, that's the most important thing you can do more than any of your own writing is reading widely. And I suppose I was reading probably above my age group from quite early on, from you know, even before 10. And then as I got older, I had a lot of interest in international literature and literature and translation. And so there were a lot of influences, a lot of things coming in that I wouldn't really have had access to just through the school curriculum or, you know, books that that other other children were reading at that age. And because of that intense interest, you know, your interest in music, was that... Did that equal it in a sense, or was it was it something lesser for you? Because you know, some kids get completely obsessed in that way about music. I think um, I was more perverse in my music taste because I I really kind of didn't want to listen to what everyone else was listening to at that time, and mm. I had developed a sort of streak of. I want to be so different to everybody else. And so I used to listen in my teens, I used to listen to a lot of classical music. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mother would be at the foot of the stairs shouting, turn that Stravinsky off! <laughs> Rather than anything else. Very good. <laughs> and um, 
And in terms of rebellion, of course, that can that can be rebellion itself. I mean, if you're listening to something that nobody else is listening to. Yeah, I mean, it certainly felt like it was part of a, a kind of forbidden world, which was kind of a, a, a cultural life that was obviously not something that was particularly available at that time. And where did in, you find your Stravinsky, etc.? Where was that? Was that already in the house? I would just, well, there were, there were some records that had belonged to my father. And then I had read a lot and had was very interested in reading about different eras and for instance, like the Ballet Russe in 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 Paris at the in the early twentieth century, and so finding out about them and and the fact that they were interested in, you know, being subversive, and Stravinsky was part of that. And then you know you'd go down to Downtown Records or wherever it was, and hopefully find a tape. It was usually you know you might get yeah. one piece of Stravinsky on it, and then a bit of Delib and a bit of Swan Lake or something. You Curi- know, curiosity. But that was going hand in hand with pop music for want of a better description of it but with everything else I mean you were listening to Stravinsky one minute and whatever was in the charts the next minute yeah R.E.M. the next minute wow <laughs> is R.E.M. on your list? I don't think it you know there were so many not, things actually. that aren't on this list and there's so many musicians that could just have filled the list with them alone but uh, well then why did you go for Transvision Vamp who, oh, are, well, who are admittedly a hoot but they don't yeah. necessarily feature that high up in the canon they don't, but I think uh, in as a as an anthem for a teenage girl, they they're pretty good. Baby, I don't care. Eamon McBride is with me in studio tonight. She doesn't care. And that's uh, Transvision Vamp. <laughs> I've forgotten. That's a real anthem, that one, isn't it? Ah, oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I could see. I, I still put that on the headphones and when I'm having a bad day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could, I could, and I'm not being funny now, but I could see you in the kitchen singing that uh, in a in a determined sort of a manner after, oh, yeah. after reading a bad review or something. Oh, I mean, post-review, that's that, that's the only <laughs> thing that's worth listening to. Now, before we get to bad reviews, and you haven't had many of them in your time, but you've had enough to annoy anybody, <laughs> I guess. It annoys me when I read them. But uh, the, we don't want to... This is not the, the book interview. The book interviews, we've done it before anyway, but mm. to, to cut a long story short, when the, your first book, after, after a, a lot of time and attempts and so forth. Many attempts was there to get it published? What oh, it was like? Know, it was but like, it was nine it was years lot. worth of them. Yeah, nine years. And then it, it broke through. It was a huge, huge success. And nobody could have seen it coming in a way. And a lot of that was down to the fact that you, were, you weren't following the rules. It wasn't the kind of book that was doing well. It wasn't the sort of book publishers were looking for. And they were, by that stage in the publishing industry, they were very clear about what they wanted and what they didn't. And your book somehow made it through and was 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 it was a wonderful thing to behold, but uh, that you were. You, I'm just curious to know how you got to the point where you were writing a book in that sort of style. It was a difficult book. Um, the fragmented—that's the word they keep using all the time. Was that literally just down to your reading and the fact you'd been reading the kind of books that other kids hadn't been reading? Yeah, I think you. It, I mean, it was reading and it was being interested in modernism um, as a result and being interested in trying to find different way to 
ways to tell a story, to find a different narrative perspective, something that that readers really hadn't experienced before. Um, but also, you know, when I was writing it, it didn't it never occurred to me that it would be that hard to sell. I mean, I knew mm. it wasn't going to be, you know, the beach read, but at the same time, it felt like it was coming out of a, a long tradition of of experimentation. Mm. Uh, so I was pretty taken aback. When yeah, but all those nobody that, wanted it. Very few people in that tradition would get published nowadays. You know the people you're talking about. Well, that's I mean that's what they say, isn't it? Am no, I, how many how many one star reviews would Ulysses have on Amazon? <laughs> quite a quite a few, I'd say. He probably still has loads now. Yeah, here's what he should have done <laughs> yeah. instead. This is the book I would have written. Yeah. So I don't want to compress your whole publishing history into one, but am I right in saying that? And this simplifies it. The first couple of books, the first book. There's a lot of Joyce and that kind of background to it, and then the, the second book, it 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 was more, I don't want to say it's more readable. The first one was readable too, but it was an easier read in a way. The second book, and then now this third book that's out, Strange Hotel, it's more Beckett in feel, I think, than Joyce. Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly true. I mean it's also really influenced by Thomas Mann and Death in Venice, but the Beckett influence, I suppose, is kind of undeniable because I wrote it while I was, you know, doing a creative fellowship in Beckett's archives. Yeah. So he just kind of filtered into my brain. But again, you're not playing by the rules, though, are you? I mean, when you, you've you've handed up three books now to publishers, which are different from what the norm is for a successful book. Yeah, but I, I, I think that's the, the writer's job is to always go forward and try to push the forum forward. And um, and I think readers are up for it. And yeah. I think publishers often forget that readers are, are up for it. And I've often found readers far more generous and interested in my work than, uh, you know, professional critics. And that's, uh, you know, that's a great feeling because that's who you're writing. That's who you want to be read by. I mean, it's nice to get a good review, but you want you know, people to engage with it and think about it and yeah. um, and argue and disagree with you. But, you know, but to want to 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 come back and, and read another one. Um, it takes a joy. But it must take some nerve. I mean, for instance, you could repeat yourself. The first one was a success and you could write another one like that and hope it will work again. Some writers do that. A lot of painters do that. Musicians do that. Similar, do something similar. Or you could uh, submit to pressure if there is one to just write something that's a more surefire definite hit I mean you can do that I can't do that I can only write what I'm interested in and that's you know really that's at the at the base of it all that's the, the truth of it for me is that I, I could try to do all of these things but unless it really interests me unless it gets me excited unless it you know becomes alive inside me and and just pushes me on I can't I mean it, every time I've tried to plan a book in a in a to, to unfold in a particular way it's just falls dead I and I know that now and I know that I just have to go with whatever whatever comes through and and hope that you know I'm able to follow the logic of it 
um, into all the right places. Well, and after your next choice, I want to talk about the, the new book, Strange Hotel, in that context. OK, your next choice is A Toasted Heretic. Ah, yeah. Ah, please explain. Well, um, I suppose I would have m- maybe been a bit young to be listening to Toasted Heretic, but I remember my eldest brother was at university in Galway in that time and when he'd come back at the weekends he'd bring the tapes and so it has very sort of particular memory of kind of late 80s early 90s for me but a toast of Teretic Some drugs make you better Some drugs make you worse Some drugs lead to heart complete and dream induced romantic verse Some drugs give you pain Some drugs cure it Some drugs give you so much pleasure you just can't endure it Some drugs take your money, some drugs give it back Some drugs make you so damn beautiful, some drugs turn your teeth black Some drugs kill your cancers, some drugs give you worse ones some drugs from Toasted Heretic, the choice of Emer McBride, who's, who's with me in studio. Toasted Heretic. Emer, th- we were talking about, uh, you know, the pressure that a writer might be under to produce something that the market wants and all the rest of it. And again, you haven't done that in, in Strange Hotel. And you said, you made the remark there that it doesn't matter what you plan or whatever, you, you know, you're, you have to go where it takes you and so on. In this in this particular book, Strange Hotel, there's there's a, a woman, the central character, who goes to various hotels. Was that the beginning of an end of the plan that you had when you started to write this book? I mean, that was that's more than I had <laughs> when I started. I started off just thinking of a short story mm. and setting it in Avignon, which is where the first part of Strange Hotel happens. And it was really only as I got to the end of that, I suddenly started to think, oh, maybe there's more here. Maybe there, there's I can I can continue on. So, you know, I started I didn't even start with I'm going to write a novel now. I just thought, well, I have a, a little bit of time on my hands. I'll, I'll write a short story. Mm. Um, which I don't normally do. I'm not. I'm not a, a great short story writer. But I mean, surely, surely you had some notion about what you wanted to write about, or something was niggling at you, some idea, some something beyond. No, just... it doesn't. I think the 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 niggling is the desire to write, to have to sit and to not feel right in myself unless I'm sitting down and writing, mm-hmm. and and that's the push. That's always the thing that gets me sitting down with my my hands on the hot keys um but it's not it's not more than that it's not that i ha- my my mind is filled with with stories that i feel i have to tell or points i want to make or characters i want to explore mm. the whole process is finding out what i think yeah because some writers do talk don't they about you know there's a character that was there there's a voice there was a voice telling me kept n- kept niggling at my brain this voice you know and it's it's, and it's interesting that for you there was nothing beyond the you just, you just felt like writing. Yeah, I mean for me it's kind of the the act of writing itself mm. is the beginning of the creative process. And then when do you when you've got something like this where there isn't a whole lot that happens? Yeah. And like Beckett, you know, as they say, nothing happens, and you know, yeah. the things do happen, but there's not it's not like there's not a shootout, there isn't a car chase, there's nothing like that. There's no great plot point. No. No. It'd be hard to do a spoiler on it. No, and in <laughs> fact, even even in terms of the character, there's not a whole lot of information. Or no. All this, these are things that you're told you have to have, that you must yeah. have. Well, I, which makes me feel very contrary, mm. actually, when, when people say that there are particular rules and things that have to be fulfilled in order to make fiction interesting to readers. I think readers are far more open to 
strange experiences. Mm. I mean, that's why you're a reader, right? Because you want to know how it goes elsewhere in the world outside of your own brain. Mm. And and I think that can lead you into all kinds of places. And I suppose it was there was a challenge in a way to see how much I could withhold yeah. in in writing the book in the way that I did, but also in making her perhaps more universal. And in some ways, it was a return to a girl as a hapon thing and taking away all of the markers of identity. So we don't know her name, but also it was a return to Lesser Bohemians in that, well, is she, is she the character from Lesser Bohemians later on? Maybe she is, uh-huh. maybe she isn't. I hadn't thought of that. Well, that's the, at the mm. end of the book, there's, you know... There are there are things there, and and there's no you know there's no answer to that. The That's way, for the, the reader way, to decide. The way you said, well, at the end of the book, I did read it, you know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping you did. <laughs> I, I, no, I did read it. I have it here. Do you want to see the notes? Look, <laughs> scribbles all up. Page True page notes. six, death again. <laughs> page twelve, a snap in her celery. Yes, one of your best lines, I think. A snap in her celery. But anyway, I did read the book, but I didn't. It didn't occur to me that it was the same. Might have been the same person. Well, but also that's, I mean, that's there. It's, it's, it's kind of the, the game that it's, if, if, you, if you want to read in that way where you're looking for connections between the books, yeah. they are there and they, you will find them. But also if you're not looking for them and you just want to engage with it in isolation, you can do that as well. And I hope that it will, you know, you'll, you kind of get, you'll get a whole book out of that without having to sure. kind of dissect it. And what's, what's brilliant about it, I think, too, is um, that hotel rooms in themselves, they're kind of neutral spaces, strange spaces, lonely spaces, the yes. places where things happen that don't happen outside of hotel rooms, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, that must have been an idea. Come on. Well, I think once um, once I'd started to write the first part, it was the idea that there were other hotel rooms. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm, you know, since a Girls Have Thing was published, I've spent a lot of time in hotel rooms, which I hadn't really done before. And so I'm aware of how that my relationship with those kind of strange spaces that you don't belong in that and nothing in them belongs to you there's no you haven't decorated them there's nothing about them express you in any way but you you have to spend time in them um how my kind of feelings towards them have changed you know when I first started going on book tours I would kind of rush in and have a look and what what are the, what are the toiletries you get yeah. oh there's envelopes and oh look at this free pen and, and and you know be quite into what was going on in the hotel room but then uh, after time you're just like oh god you know is there anything in the minibar? <laughs> Is it a very expensive minibar? <laughs> I notice in the list of hotels, Inniskilling gets mentioned as well, which is my hometown. Uh, yes. Well, you know, I think for my for myself, I it is a list of, of all the hotels I've ever stayed in. In, in my life. So there, there is a slightly autobiographical element. I ah, see. I'm not going to ask that awful question then, you know. Just, just, <laughs> Don't ask the no, man question no, of the no, woman I'm writer. Not, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, your next track is, your next choice is Pulp. Again, which yeah. dates you exactly where you were. Oh, yeah, age. exactly. And I suppose this is a song that really... I mean, there's a couple of songs in this, but this one really is a kind of Lesser Bohemians song for me, something that I listen to a lot and um, really remind me of that, that time in the 90s. (laughs) 
And that's uh, Pulp, the choice of uh, Emer McBride, who's with me in studio. I did ask the question as that was playing, was she one of those women out there who really fancied uh, Jarvis Cocker? And yes. That, that is true, I was. My, my 18-year-old self, my heart still pounds at the thought of Jarvis Cocker. You see, this is the thing. And I mean, I learned a lot from your Lesser Bohemians book. And I remember saying to you at the time that I, I wish myself as a young man had read a book like that or and was recommending that all young men read that book at that time because you know fellas know very little about women and this can be very very significant although at the minute even just talking about something which seems a bit lighter than that did you fancy Jarvis Cocker (laughs) because to be honest when I was around at that time I didn't think women fancied people who looked like Jarvis Cocker you know, I mean, you tried not to look like Jarvis Cocker. You tried to wear different trousers like that. If you had glasses, you were condemned. All oh, the rest yeah. of it. Oh, yeah, and and I and I don't think I don't think you know women generally did. But I think I've that met was, a lot of women who love Jarvis Cocker. Yeah, but I think that was Jarvis Cocker was the kind of the change in that. That was the beginning of the of, of Britpop before it got you know kind of dickish. But at at the start, where it was, or like Brett Anderson, yeah. where there they were kind of men who seemed a bit more emotionally available, who seemed a bit more vulnerable, who didn't seem aggressive, um, and who were intelligent and had humor, and suddenly that became much more they that became a thing in in the nineties that that women suddenly went oh that. That we'll have that, and then on the other side, of course, you had the kind of thuggy oasis types, and yeah. But you see, prior to that, the there was the preening rock god was mm. was presented as the, as the attractive. Oh well, male yeah, John Bon Jovi, yeah, featured on many many a bedroom wall, as I recall. Yeah. And, and, and but that went back quite a bit, you know, Robert Plant and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah. And I mean, Elvis is an exception, I suppose, as a as a, spe- as a person, as a yeah. as a, a different a, thing, a different thing altogether. But uh, again. If if men only knew a bit more about about women, we'd all be we'd all be better off. I well, guess. we would all be better off. But you know, it's not that hard for half the population. I don't know well, why it's taking well, you fer- all so long. In fairness, it's kind of hard when you're growing up in an all boys school and and nobody's telling you anything, and you're not reading books written by women, and you're not listening to records and songs written by women, and all of that stuff. You know. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I know. I mean, it's part of the problem is that that women uh, grow up in a culture that's completely fueled by male literature by male music by all of those things so we're supposed to understand we're supposed to, to kind of make all yeah, but the accommodations boys, boys do too I mean they did then boys were also growing up with the same limitations in terms of they had a different impact obviously on women but but boys too were didn't they were being they were being told the same stuff in terms of books and records yeah, and but with different cultural expectations different expectations and, diff- and, a, and a massively different outcome obviously yeah yeah is is the Lesser Bohemians now on any kind of curriculum or it oh, should I, be? I, I think there would be far too much shagging for that to... to uh, I think, you know, there are people who've done essays on it and, and dissertations and things on it, but I don't think it'll yeah, be on it's, any curriculum. Yeah, but it's not the shagging, it's the consequences of the shagging which are, interested in, which are interesting in... Yeah, in, in I mean, I, I agree. I, I, and, I, and I think it should be. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, I don't know. I think people are still very uncomfortable about very sexually explicit writing. Particularly by women. Particularly by women and particularly by women about men. Yeah. Why is that then? Um, because I suppose historically women weren't allowed to have an opinion about male sexual behaviour. Mm-hmm. They they kind of put up with the consequences of it. 
um, or they didn't at their own peril. Um, but certainly the I was very aware when that when that book came out how many male critics seemed deeply, deeply uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that portrayal of um particularly of male sexuality and of it being imperfect and of it having kind of difficult consequences. They can't have been surprised by it. Uh they can't have been surprised. Yeah. I think they, they certainly seem very surprised and they and they, there was a lot of carry on like, Oh my god, how many times has she written the word knickers in this book? You know, and and just a, a cute embarrassment yeah. actually about it, which I found quite entertaining actually. Um but you know, the the kind of the engagement that came from female critics was of a completely different calibre, by and large. Yeah, at last, I think, was the response there. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of uh, at last. <laughs> okay. Your next choice. Uh, my next choice is now for something completely different, okay. which is uh, the Lacrimosa from Mozart's Requiem. And I suppose this is to do with listening to this a lot when when one of my older brothers died and um and as as cliched as it may be it it kind of helped to lie on the sofa and listen to it on repeat Music there from Mozart, the Lacrimosa from uh, the Requiem, the choice of Emer McBride. Emer, you know, you said this was, this music was a help to you, and uh, sometimes you know when something terrible happens, I, I I'm, I'm never sure of music or any of these things that you love is, is really a help at all, you know. In what way was it a help? Do you think? I think at that time, you know, I was very young and I was kind of very isolated from a lot of things, and I think these kind of grand pieces of music that are have have been have been in existence for years and years before you were born and will go on ever after there it creates a sense of universality in mm. that this has been the music of grief mm. for 200 years and 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 sometimes that's the best that you can do in the midst mm. of grief is 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 know that you are not the only person who has ever grieved, mm. nor will you ever be, and one day someone will grieve for you, um, and that you hope that you will have been loved enough mm-hmm. to to be grieved over, and I suppose great pieces of music like that, they just remind you of of kind of the endless churning over of the human race mm. and. And that beauty is perhaps all that we really have and can hope to leave behind. And also, I guess, in terms of, you know, artists can do it, good ones, they can express um, grief um, in ways that most of us can't. And I suppose when you hear something like that, you really do know someone has understood it, got it. You know, yeah. you know, it's feeling, it sounds like a cliche, but it's feeling what you're feeling or has felt. Yeah, well, I mean, I think great art in all forms is is that which can articulate the unspeakable or the unsayable or sometimes even the unnameable within mm. within us in a personal, deeply personal way, but also in a collective way. Mm. I mean, to lose your brother like that, I mean, 
and, and of course you lost your dad too at a young age. I mean, at any age when you lose someone like that, it, it does derail you in ways. It introduces whole new emotions that you didn't know you had and whole new fears that you didn't, you'd never felt before. Mortality being the obvious one. Yeah. It comes into your life. I think, I mean, when I I was eight, when my my father died and from that time on, I was never unaware of death. I never had the experience of feeling that, you know, I was going to live forever because I had known from child on what it looked like and that death meant death. It didn't mean, you know, they went to the farm and lived happily ever after that, that a dead body is really, really different to a live body. Um, And... And I suppose then losing my brother in my early 20s compounded that and also gave me um, a sense of urgency about living, of of not taking things for granted and of not assuming that there will always be time. Mm. And that, that does set you apart in a way because a lot of people, if they're lucky, may not get to experience that feeling uh, until they could be in their 40s. You know, I mean, my parents didn't die until I was in my my 40s, so I was very lucky. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it is unusual to go through two major kind of bereavements by the time you're 22. Um, And it had a very, you know, staggering effect on me in my in my early to mid 20s that I really just was lost and really broken and really just didn't know what to do with myself and nothing that had been important to me before seemed important anymore. Um, but, you know, when the kind of the terrible pain of, of early bereavement started to recede, a lot of important things started to settle in my mind and uh-huh. I really began to focus on on what it was that that I wanted to do, what I knew I should be spending my time doing. Um, and and that was writing. And again, it sounds like a cliche, but did the writing save you? You know, where people say music saved my life, that kind of thing. I don't. I don't know if it saved me. I think it didn't. I don't really believe in writing as catharsis. I don't think it made anything better. Mm. But I think it gave me a, a framework um, for dealing with the world. It gave me a way to think. To work out myself what I thought about the world, um, and I and I still feel like that now that I don't really know what I think about something until I've I've written something about it, and then suddenly it, it starts to make sense to me what what my own thoughts are. It still serves the same function for you. Yeah, and it's and it's in a way it's not a kind of in, intellectual function. It's it's much more basic. It's much more animal, um, and of course you don't normally associate writing. With, with something as basic as that. Um, and But it is for me, it is it is a survival instinct. Your next choice, Emer. My next choice is oh, man. to cheer, cheer things up slightly. <laughs> I See a Darkness by Bonnie Prince Billy.
is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. John Kelly here until 9 o'clock, the Sunday night special, when we get someone to pick the music. And tonight, I'm delighted, it's uh, Emer McBride. The, the novelist, uh, her most recent book, Strange Hotel, has been obsessing me of late. I got an early copy of it and I've been living in that strange world, Emer. You've done it again. You keep putting me into a strange world in which I'm kind of uncomfortable. Well, I think that's that's a fine place to be, isn't that the best we can all hope for? Is that our, so. our brains are somewhere uncomfortable and working hard. Fair enough. Now we're, if I come to think of it, uncomfortable. Does the word enigmatize? I wrote, made a note of it. Does the word enigmatized exist? Um, it does now. I think perhaps it didn't before, but if it didn't, it should have. No, it it's, it's quite useful. You've invented that word, I think. <laughs> now, before the break, we were talking about. Um, um, grief and art and music and all the things that might help you through it and so on. But one of the things you did before you found your feet as a writer was acting. Um, where, what was the origin of the acting bug for you, do you think? Where did that come from? Well, I think my mother first started to send me to drama classes after my father died, I think because I was in a bit of a state. And I I just really took to it. And I... Um, I was just a very, very imaginative child and I like to inhabit other worlds. And so it kind of grew out of that. Um, And then as I got older and again, it became about inhabiting kind of different eras and different times, different types of writing. And it was certainly reading out of plays augmented my my avid novel reading in my teens. Were Were you already that kind of a child? Or did, was all of this a result of losing your dad at an early age, do you think? No, no, definitely not. I, I, I read a lot mm. from very early on. I think my, my father really, you know, he taught me to read when I was three. I always read a lot and he read a lot to me. And and also my mother was always very keen on wordplay mm-hmm. and invented languages, not baby talk, but kind of invented languages. So there was always a lot of that. And I think my ear kind of picked picked up on that from very early on and it was you know it was it was a way of escape and it but it was also a lot of fun like there was I don't remember it as a kind of heavy thing that was connected to grief it was a lot of pleasure and brought a lot of interesting things into my life. Now you took it very seriously and you took it quite far so you ended up in London. I did. At the best possible place. Yeah so I ended up at uh, at uh, the, the famous drama centre uh, London in the early 90s, which was um, at that time the only place that that taught uh, Stanislavski method. And so I spent three years immersed in that. And it was kind of a crazy place, to be honest. And it was kind of 11 hours a day. So, you know, people would be going on about their, oh, their lecture, their, their two hours of lectures or something. And I'd be like, mm. oh, for God's sake. Um, and it was very, it was very hardcore. You know, the, one of the teachers taught at the actor's studio and was going to tell us stories about, you know, teaching Al Pacino and things like that, which of course we all loved. Um, and it was very much about learning how to recreate the kind of the inner world of your character and, and the physical life of your character. And it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of jazz hands, shall yeah. we say that. There was yeah. quite a lot of Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, clearly you wanted to be an actress. You wanted to be a professional actress, or did you? Yeah, I did. I certainly uh, thought that I did. And, you know, and I, if I say so myself, I wasn't half bad at it either. Um, uh, but I, I suppose I think there was also a confusion about language. Like I took such pleasure 
in learning lines and rolling them around in my head and and also in in kind of working out how to make it be alive how to make it stand up on its own two feet what did it look like how did you make the words into a body um and that was part of the thing that I really loved about acting and do you act your novels, in a sense, as you write them, do you do you read them out aloud? Do you say the words out aloud? So oh, I absolutely yeah. do. I read aloud a lot, uh, you know, for meter, um, but also to to kind of really dig down into it and make sure that I'm kind of hitting all the spots that I want to be hitting. But is there a contradiction there, in a sense? Because I mean, again, in Strange Hotel, the character there's there's no information about the character at all, or very little. Um, and again, that's kind of it seems to be contrary to the whole idea of finding out about a character and what the character's motivations are and so on. Well, yes, it, I mean, it is. But at the same time, I think by the end of the book, hopefully you feel like you have understood something quite profound about this woman. Mm. And it might not be whether she has, um, you know, a, a Volkswagen Golf or not. And, and it doesn't matter if she, you know, has highlights in her hair. But that you can really understand something about who this woman is and the life that she's been carrying inside her and and living through you know in all these different rooms and that interests me a lot more than than all the kind of extraneous details mm-hmm. of of identity but to really feel like you understand someone in a in a really profound way and would you say then that the acting the years you spent at it and it was tough it was hard um that they, those years really stood here. They, yeah, they did. I mean, it was. It, it's not something that I could ever regret, and I, I, I got a great education. I got a great way of learning to think about the world through, and, and as a through ri- that. As a writer, and as a writer, it was. It's been absolutely uh, foundational for me because you know I often think of, of the way I would describe my writing is like method writing. Oh, you know, it's okay. really it's making language do what what a method actor has to do to their body and their brain. It's just trying to make words do it instead. Your next musical choice, we not even say what it is, because I think this starts itself so <laughs> so brilliantly. We'll just fire it. Get ready for love. Get Ready for Love from uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Yeah, I know you're a fan because Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds was music that featured in The Lesser Bohemians as well and on the, the little um, playlist that Faber brought out with it. That's right. Well, you know, Nick Cave features in the in kind of the, the pivotal losing of the virginity scene where, where the, the male character puts on some Nick Cave and and when she kind of gets, gets too embarrassed to go any further, she kind of listens to, to Nick Cave and, and to a fly in the curtain. And, and suffers so uh, yeah I'm very I'm very fond of Nick Cave yeah I haven't forgotten that scene again, <laughs> again, you always make me very uncomfortable Emma, I have to tell you which is good well you right, know right, I mean, it's, it's right and proper yeah I mean that's the the point of writing is to, is to make you see the world in a maybe in a slightly different way it doesn't have to be dramatically different but just to kind of to point out the sore points we talked earlier about um, how uncomfortable your books had made some male critics in, in particular um, um, and again, 
and it's not it's not for the same reason I, I, uh, in terms of sexual content or anything. But I've, I've read reviews of Strange Hotel as well, where those people who have had issues with it, I'm 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 reading reviews which suggest that their main problem is it wasn't the book that they would have written. That must be hard to swallow as a, a, you know when you're being reviewed by someone who isn't really reviewing your book, they're reviewing the book that they wanted to write themselves. Well, or they're reviewing the book that they wanted to read yeah. rather than the book that you've written. And it is very frustrating where people won't just engage and or they assume that because it isn't the way they would like it to be that you've made a mistake or that you've yeah. you've got it the wrong way around rather than thinking, well, she, she, she chose it. Yeah. She wrote it in this way. Why did she write it in this way? And then when people do that, when they they have quibbles or they don't like it, it's different because you know that they have treated your work with some respect and just gone, okay, this is what, she she wrote this for a reason and I, I wanted to think about why. And and when people just don't do that, when they just think, well, when they just, the review is kind of, well, I, I just don't know what went on in that and I I wish that it had been a book about you know, why didn't she write more about the social conditions of Avignon or what the shopping is like in Auckland? Or, you know, I just, I mean, it just misses the point of it all. And that's, it's kind of, I mean, it is kind of frustrating, but it's also slightly hilarious and terrible, really, that those kind of people get to write reviews in serious publications. Yeah, and also some of the people who I think the book your your book would get sent to because you're a woman and because your book was a phenomenon and all the rest of it aren't necessarily literary critics anyway. Not that they're necessarily any better, <laughs> but, but you know the whole lifestyle thing is applied because you're a woman, I guess. Yeah, I think there there is a way of of treating kind of literary authors that male literary authors are obviously very serious and get reviewed in very serious and particular ways by other serious uh, mm. literary reviewers and and. Um, and serious literary f- women writers um, are segregated, and are those are that, that's different, and and you get treated as though you know your your work isn't doesn't need to be regarded in the same way, doesn't need a bit of thought applying to it that it's supposed to be accessible to everyone, and that actually if it's in any way difficult or awkward, or then that's a sign of your failing as a writer. Mm. Um, and and that's that's pretty hard to take when you see male writers who are interested in form and language like I am being getting kind of very serious reviews from serious critics and 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 I have kind of the lifestyle writer uh, I, I, reviewing me going oh well I, I she just spends a lot of time thinking about herself or yeah. something you know and by the way how do you juggle your okay. <laughs> How do you juggle being a writer with being a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Okay, let's have another piece of music. I I know you're a huge fan of Tinder Sticks, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, so this one is, you know, again, I could have I could have chosen all my songs tonight could have come from Tinder Sticks catalogue. This one is a song that I listen to a lot in the writing of of Les Bohemians. And uh, unsurprisingly, it is called Jism.
Tinder sticks there, the choice of uh, Eamon McBride. You never let me down, ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, you know, the thing, the way, the way women writers are, are treated differently, and there's been so much talk about this in recent times that you would imagine it was starting to change or it might have changed, but maybe it hasn't. I still, even a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a sort of a debate going on about how men write memoirs, but women write confessional pieces. You know, there's a different approach taken even to that, even, even writing about your own life. <laughs> Not even fiction. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, I mean, it's a common complaint for, for most women writing is that they are constantly asked how much of this is based on you. Um, and and that even if they're not asked that, the assumption is that it, it must be because, you know, how can, how can a woman possibly make a, a leap of the imagination? How can a woman think deeply about the world and arrive at a set of conclusions which yeah. she chooses to express through the the tools that her life is surrounded by because that just makes it domestic, right? That's not art, is yeah. it? That's less, but so much it, less. Is it any better than it was? I mean, surely your, your very presence and, and many others must be changing that. I do think it it's better, but, but you know, uh, you know, as with the... Uh, as with the... Uh, politics at the moment the old guard um, are biting down hard because they're dying in their last traps and there are a lot of really great uh, women coming through um, and yet I think you can see a lot from from the quality of the reviews they get mm-hmm. of um, elderly embittered male uh, critics attacking young women um, and and you wonder about the choices that have been made. Why why was that person selected to review a book which yeah. is talking about a world which is clearly outside of his understanding? Um, and and that's and that's where it is. That's where you see what's going on. Um, the kind of the revenge or the let's provoke them, let's have a go at them, yeah. let's let's just get someone who who who's just not going to get this book, who's not going to read this book in an open way. Yeah. Let's get them, and um, because they will go on the attack, um, with all the gravitas which they feel they possess, well, and yeah. and not realizing that everyone sees them. Yeah, like we do all, we see it. We it's, know it's, it's there. It's sinister and it's cynical and it's ardent. Yeah, and it's, it's nasty. And, and a it's a very nasty it. culture yeah. um, around kind of tormenting, tormenting women and, and provoking rather than trying to really engage with the change that needs to, to be made. Next choice. Next choice Scott is... Scott Walker. Uh, yeah, Scott Walker, who I have loved and admired for a long time and could have chosen many... Uh, many tracks to to play. I arrived at Scott Walker kind of from the from the wrong direction. So I I was first introduced to Scott Walker in through late Scott Walker through yeah. Tilt, yeah. and and then had to go back and discover Scott One to Four and all of that yeah. later on. Um, but I uh, I loved it. I mean, the first time I listened to Tilt, and this is the first track of Tilt, Farm in the City, I. I just started to cry. I just thought, I've never heard anything like this. A bit, a bit like you and your novels, I don't think Scott Walker paid too much attention to the record company and what they, he, were, uh, what they were waiting for. I think he was, uh, he, he was pure soul. He did what he had to do, and, and I really admire that. Scott Walker, Farmer in the City.
That's Scott Walker, farmer in the city, the choice of Emer McBride, who's with me in the studio. Actually, just I just remembered in the course of what we were talking about the last time about how, how women writers get treated differently. You did something with Edna O'Brien quite recently, didn't you? Uh, yes, I uh, I interviewed her for the launch of her, her new novel, Girl. This was in London at the... At the National Theatre. National Theatre, yeah. yeah. I remember reading about that. And one of the New York publications, somebody had a lash at Edna O'Brien. I mean, the what was that New Yorker about? did a profile of Edna O'Brien um, in the autumn, which was so incredibly smarmy and sneery and kind of inexplicable, really. Yeah, and but obviously was written was approached with an agenda that mm. they would kind of mock her and try and catch her out and try and show her up. And I thought it was a complete disgrace, mm. an absolute outrage, and that it was being done by this this male writer, as though as though he was doing something new. <laughs> he was so clever, and not that that men had been doing that to mm. her her whole life. Mm. And that we all sit there looking at them and we know them for what they are. We've seen them mm. and we know her history. And here he comes along when she's 89. The cleverest guy in, uh, you know, leaving Cert English, going to have a pop at Edna O'Brien. And as though no one knows what that's about. How did you get on with Edna? Ah, oh, she's amazing. Yeah. I love her. I think she's she's an extraordinary woman. Yeah. Yeah. Her books have meant a lot to me. And... And and obviously her her personal history and what she went through as an artist, um, what she kind of had to had to um, stare down and continue writing in the face of of a lot of of professional of sexism and all kinds of you know everyone knows the story about what happened after Country Girls was published and and she she stood her ground mm. and she she just kept writing. And, you know, that's a very inspirational story. She wasn't crushed. And, and it's not that it didn't cost her. It did cost her. It was hard. It's not like she was so strong that, that the bullets bounced off. It cost her a lot to go through what she did. And she survived. And I'm glad that she did. And it's important, I think, for people to think about that, to know about that. And I think it's why I take such huge delight in the real kind of resurgence of love for mm-hmm. her and respect for her work. Next choice, Emer. Uh, next choice is uh, this I'm choosing because of my daughter, which when she was born, this was the only thing that could get her to stop crying, which is Surfing Bird by the Trashman. Two minutes and 15 seconds of sheer genius. How well everybody's heard about the bird. Trashman and Surfing Bird, the choice of uh, Emer McBride, who's, who's with me in the studio. The, the way you've been talking about things there, Emer, and the, the questions I've been asking, if anybody who's listening tonight might suggest that there's terrible uh, battle lines drawn within the literary world, and, and they are there, there's no doubt about it. But there must also be a, um, great positivity, too. I mean, you do, you're doing events all the time with male writers, you're dealing with male writers, you, you will get sympathetic reviews from male writers as well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've had, you know, some some of the great reviews of my career, things that kind of 
kicked kicked everything off for me were were by male writers and I uh, and there are a lot of male writers that I hugely admire and and you know a lot of male writing was kind of the beginning of my reading mm. you know I when in my teens I was sort of obsessed with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and and all those kind of great male books um, and and so. In a way, it's 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 difficult to have the kind of oh, male writer versus female writer because because art goes beyond mm-hmm. those boundaries, and it's important to never lose sight of that. And um, I suppose the argument, my argument, really is I I just wish it was a little more reciprocated from the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Anne Enright said recently that women find it easy to admire men. But men find it hard to admire women, and I think that's very, very true. Um, and you you see that a lot in the literary world, where a lot of men just won't uh, read uh, women writers. And I think I I I'm not the person who has the greatest cause of complaint mm-hmm. when it comes to that. I think I've, for some reason, and I think maybe because modernism has always been traditionally a boys' club, that because I was writing within that tradition and started writing in that tradition at a time when very few other people were, I was kind of allowed in by the back door mm-hmm. and was treated with a seriousness that other women were not treated with automatically. The next choice, I had this remind you were photographed recently in a T-shirt from this, this, <laughs> this band. I thought there's the first time I've seen a writer wear an Einstein's Neubatten T-shirt. Yeah, well, I don't know why. I mean, that's they're, not they're me. pretty amazing. Like, and, uh, that's not me commenting on your fashion because you're, <laughs> you're a woman writer. I'm commenting on your cool T-shirt. Well, they, I think it's just as well. Fashion has never quite been my thing. But um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm interested in experimental things. What can I say? And, and, and they are an experimental uh, band. Do you, do you want to say it? I don't want to say it. Einstein der Neubauten. And that was uh, Einsters and Neue Batten and the Garden. Emer McBride with me in uh, in studio. Emer, just in the time we've got left, I always think it's useful for people listening who may be writers themselves to know a little bit about you know how you go about it process wise. Um, do you do you write at home? Do you have an office you go to? Do you have a shed? I I have a box room yeah. in in my uh, in my home, and uh, it's really important to me that nothing else can be in that room. So it's a very small room, so it can't you can't fit uh you know a camp bed in it or anything. So no one can stay there. Yeah. It's just me and my desk. And uh yeah, I I prefer to write at home. I know lots of uh writers really enjoy going to residencies and things, but I, I like to just be at home and um and live as mundanely as possible while I'm while I'm writing. you know, I, I I'm very kind of nine to five about it. And uh, certainly for a first draft, I would always try and do a thousand words a day and then just read the next day, cut, start again. Um, 
So, you know, I, there's no great secret to it. I think people are always asking for tips. How do you write? Mm. How do you write a book? Well, you know, you just sit down and you write a book. Yeah. There is no easy way well, to do it. Well, it's not so much the how do you write the book, but what what circumstances might make it more possible, I guess. People yeah. often wonder about that. Yeah, no know. circumstances make it more possible. No. It doesn't it's never easy. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that writers have have secrets. They're just the people who get the writing done. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between a person who's a writer and a person who is not. It's not about success. It's not even about publication, as I know quite well. Yeah. It's about the person who gets the writing done. Say about say those first thousand words you write. Um, well, day one, thousand words. Day two, you look at them. Um, yeah. Would those thousand words be typically half decent or Typically terrible. I mean, a total mess. Oh, no, usually 850 immediately get cut. Right. And start again from the most interesting collection of words. Right. <laughs> which may be a sentence or may not, depending. Next choice, Benjamin Clementine. Yeah, Clementine. well, this is this is my kind of I Love London song, I suppose. And uh, I've, I've moved back there about two and a half years ago after 10 years away, living in Cork and then living in Norwich. And uh, it always felt like home to me, I suppose, and it still does. And I feel, you know, completely sort of Irish in the middle of that. But I feel like I'm London Irish Um, and ever, you know. And I I had to bring it up, but has Brexit affected that in terms of your sense of the place? I think, I mean, obviously Brexit is a very sour uh, thing to have to swallow. And I was absolutely a Remainer and and am now... um, I think it has created a very nasty atmosphere yeah. in the country and I see it I see you know when I when I first came to London in the, in the 90s there was a really um, you know a lot of uh, racism towards the Irish and that really disappeared over the years with the ceasefire and then good friday agreement and and all of that and I and I see it now you can see it directed obviously particularly at muslims um and it's something that I feel very conscious of as an Irish person that that I can see that and and say that I see that there and and that we should stand in solidarity with other people who are, you know, being treated as terrorists. And and of course, it's much harder for them because, they're, you know, they're brown. Mm. You can see them. Mm. Whereas in, as the Irish, you just had to keep your mouth shut at the right moment and nobody knew. Here's your London song, Benjamin Clementine, London. Pretending, but no one is buying. London, London, London is calling you. What are you waiting for? What are you searching for? London, London, London is all in you. Why are you denying the truth? I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm Benjamin Clementine there and London. Time for one more uh, track, Emer. Uh, but before you go, I wanted to ask you one thing. Now, you were talking there about your writing process and how you like to keep it nine to five. You're not taking notes. You're not getting up in the middle of the night. You're presumably not lying awake at night either thinking about the novels. Oh, or, I don't know. I have a lot of insomnia. Yeah. And I, I, because of that. Yeah. and But often useful things, things get do get solved in the middle of the night where I just think, oh, oh yeah, But okay. then do you, do you not get up then and go and write them down? No, because no. if, if it really is a good idea, it'll be there. Right. Well, the, the reason I ask is you, you talked about method acting and, and calling, referring to your novels as method novel writing. What was yeah. the phrase you used? No, uh, method yeah. writing. Method writing. Um, 
you know, I'm not an actor, but the, the, the story always is that method acting takes an awful lot out of the actor. You know, so what about this method writing? I mean, what sort of a, what sort of I mean, your books are, are heavy and tough, and I mean that in a good way. Um, what what does it take out of out of you to be dwelling in them for so long? Oh yeah, like I, I am ruined <laughs> inside. Well, you seem all right today, but I, I don't know what you'd be like, you know, come half ten tonight. Yeah, know? well, you know, luckily I have quite a good sense of humour about mm. the world, and that sees me through. But yeah, it's not. I don't find it easy. Mm. But also, if I don't write, then I'm kind of crazy. So it's it's the choice between, you know, suffering and making mm. something that hopefully will have meaning and have beauty um, or, or not. Writing really does take a lot out of you and demands a lot from you and from those who are around you mm. who hopefully think that it's worth it mm. at the end of the day. Um but also, you know, those those nine years of failure when I couldn't get published, I knew that I was still a writer and and that the writing was the most important bit. And I, while I hoped for publication and I hoped for success, that the writing was the thing I couldn't live without and success was the thing that I could live without if I had to. No, I must say it is much nicer to have it than not. <laughs> Eimear, thanks a million for coming in. A pleasure as always talking to you. The book... Strange Hotel is published by Faber and Faber and uh, it's another marvel. Congratulations on uh, Strange Hotel and thanks Thank for you. your fine, fine musical choices. Uh, I knew they'd be good. Your last one is? My last one is, you know, this is kind of the, the key to me. It's called Dark Night of the Soul by Sparkle Horse and Danger Mouse. Eamor McBride, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.